The reading for today is from Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I, sent, that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thank you, Ashley. You read through verse 5, right? That's what I asked you. To, yeah, so I think we have an extra slide up there. I know that might have thrown you off, so thanks for doing that. You're a real professional. I appreciate that. All right. Thank you. All right. Good to see you guys. Uh, wow. The word of the Lord came a second time to Jonah. So th this is just such an interesting story. Uh, just by way of a little bit of review and, and setting up what we're going to talk about today. We've had, we've had chapter one where the word of the Lord came the first time to Jonah and he asked him to go to Nineveh and he goes completely op the opposite way. Ends up in a tremendous storm and then gets thrown overboard as a sacrifice so that the sailors could live and he's swallowed by a great fish. And then in the second chapter, we looked at his prayer while he's inside that great fish. And then he is spit up or vomited up onto the dry land, uh, as scripture says. And last week, Cody talked about one specific verse in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 9, salvation belongs uh, to the Lord. And that's where we stand right now in the story. And I will tell you, these next two weeks, there is so much here in the next two weeks. Just be prepared. I'm going to try my best to stay as close as I can to my notes because when I go off notes, the sermons get even longer. Um, I'll try to, to keep it under control, but I would also ask you to be prepared. Um, if you're a caffeine drinker, drink some caffeine before you come. It might help you uh, to be able to keep up. Excellent. Thank you, Cammie. Um, so one of the things I wanted to bring up as a way of just getting into chapter 3 is that Jonah is actually unique among these minor prophets. N not the prophets that we read about in, say, First and Second Kings, like Elijah and Elijah, Elijah and Elisha, um, but as a minor prophet that he's grouped with these other prophets. He is unique in that this book is not a story about the words of the prophet, but rather about the prophet himself and his behavior. That is different than all these other prophets. Uh, and, and knowing what happened in chapter 1, I think we now have to ask the question, in light of the rest of the story, did Jonah really repent? The last two weeks, it really seems like it. Did he really repent? Uh, we're going to be looking at that. One, one of the things we're going to be looking at in the next couple of weeks, chapters 3 and 4, is what was his repentance like? And the answer to that question is, well, yes, he did repent, Maybe, kind of, sort of. <laughs> that, that's the best way to say it. He, he did go and do what God asked him to do, but he did not do it with joy. So it was more out of compliance. And I think this should help remind us that true repentance is usually not just a one-and-done deal. 
We'd like it to be, but it's not. Martin Luther, the great reformer 600 years ago, wrote this. The whole of the Christian life is one of repentance. We should be engaged in repentance and other Christian disciplines every day, every hour, on an ongoing basis. Jonah's problem is, is that he did repent it, but he wanted to negotiate his repentance. How many of you, don't show your hands, how many of you want to negotiate your repentance with God? In other words, to do as little as possible in response and still have repentance. See, we need to repent every day, and that's hard, I know. We need to be in this constant attitude and orientation toward repentance. But it doesn't stop there, because I think these other things are connected to repentance as well. You can't separate repentance from forgiveness either. We also need to forgive every single day. We need to forgive hourly. And I want to stop there just for a minute and talk about this. This is a really hard topic, forgiveness. I'm, I'm not talking about just like somebody said something mean to you or somebody cut you off in traffic or you didn't get your coffee drink the way you wanted it. Uh, what we're talking about here is genuine crisis and trauma, the hard stuff, uh, things that people have gone through that have affected them for life in a very, very dark and negative way. And, and I want to acknowledge to those of you in this room about that forgiveness. I know that you know the academic and cognitive answer. I know you know that. Yes, of course I need to forgive. The problem is, is that that's really not enough to know it cognitively. For, for, let me put it, I want to make sure I get this across. It's not enough for me to stand up here and say, you need to forgive. That's not enough. That's not enough. With that kind of forgiveness, you need community, relationship, help. You need the church. You need, to be, you need the church to come alongside of you and walk with you in this. Now, that, that's going to take some courage to go and ask, but, but you can't do this alone. You've already tried. And you know cognitively, you know academically, you know how to give the yearbook answer to that question. You know that. But it's hard, isn't it? And you need help. We have deacons, we have elders, we have pastoral staff, we have redemption communities. Let's acknowledge that that's hard. And you have to engage with that every single day. And it's not that fun. So repentance, forgiveness, a couple others. We need to submit daily. We also need to seek wisdom every day. These are disciplines. These are discipline. Discipline is hard. Not because it wants to be hard, but because it is. These are disciplines of the Christian life. Now, chapter 4 is going to have more about, to say about Jonah's repentance and ours. We're dealing with chapter 3 primarily today. And finally, by way of review and preview, chapters 3 and 4 further demonstrate last week's sermon from chapter 2, verse 9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You're just going to see that uh, reinforced time and time again. Let me, let me read just the entire chapter now of chapter 3, and then we're just going to tear it apart for the next 35 minutes, okay? 
So I'll start at verse 10 of chapter 2. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah up out upon to the dry land. Verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah and said, uh, the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of God, the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. We keep hearing that Nineveh is a great city. Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That was his sermon. And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he, rose, he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. He's calling for a fast. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. And who knows, God may turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Abraham Kuyper, you heard Cody quote him last week, he says the Bible can, not should, but can be summed up with verse 1 of chapter 3. There's so much there in verse 1. Here's what he finds. He says, we know from verse 1 of chapter 3 that God is sovereign. We know that he's relentless. We know that God desires to redeem. And we know that God's purpose always wins, even when we don't care for or agree with his purpose. Now, some have tried to turn uh, verse 1, this verse 1 second chance into the moral of the story. Let me tell you something. One of the things we're going to deal with these next two weeks are the many misreadings of the second two chapters of Jonah out, that are out there. There's lots of misreadings of, of Jonah. And this is one of them. Many want to turn this second chance into the moral of the story. Every scholar that I read said that's not the moral of the story. It's an aspect of this particular story, but it's not the moral. Yes, God is slow to anger and he's long-suffering. But God also doesn't owe us anything. That's hard for us. He doesn't owe us a second chance. He does not owe us a second chance. There's lots of second chances in Scripture, and all of us can talk about our second chances, but he does not owe that to us. He, he doesn't have a debt to us to give us that second chance. Instead, this is not a story about a second chance, but rather a story about what God can and will do in order for his purpose to be achieved. This is about God, not Jonah. This story is an explication of Psalm 115.3, which states very simply that the Lord sits in the heavens and he does what he pleases. That's who the Lord is. We don't like that, I know that, because we want to sit on high. I know. We won't say that out loud. But we, here you go, all of us would like to be Bruce from Bruce Almighty. We would, because we're all sure that we could do a much better job than God. And remember, 
Jonah has not heard from God since the start of chapter 1. This is, we, we forget this. Um, chapter 3, verse 1, is the first time since the beginning of chapter 1 that God speaks directly to Jonah, but God has been affecting Jonah's life and thus disciplining Jonah through Jonah's circumstances. So he's been there. He just, this is only the second time that he's really spoken directly to him. So this time Jonah goes, and who wouldn't at this point? I think you'd be surprised. <laughs> there are lots of people who still wouldn't go at this point. It's amazing how much trouble some people will endure and still thumb their nose at God, and that's always been true. Consider Jonah even. He was in this horrible, life-threatening storm, and he wouldn't go. It, it took him having to spend three days inside of a large fish before he said, okay, I've had enough. I'm, I'm ready to go now. But it's also helpful to remember that that was God's merciful discipline on Jonah. Merciful discipline. And that God only disciplines those whom he loves. Here's Hebrews uh, chapter 12, verses 4 through 7. The writer says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure God you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? So Jonah goes, and I think it's fair to ask now, well, why is Nineveh such a great city? Because it keeps, God keeps saying that about Nineveh. Several reasons. Number one, its size. It was really big for an 8th century B.C. city, just its geographical size. Its population, 100, at least 120,000 people were told in chapter 4. That's huge for an 8th century B.C. I mean, absolutely massive. I mean, this, this city in its day was Mexico City or Seoul, South Korea. It was also an economic center. Many, many commerce pathways merged and converged in Nineveh. It also had great wealth. That made it a great city. And the city also had great sin. There were many sinful people who needed the love, the kindness, and the redemption of God. God calls it a great city because there is ministry opportunity there. It's a great city because there's ministry to be done there. Phoenix is a great city. Tucson is a great city. Flagstaff is a great city. I'll stop there. And then what do we do about this idea of three days' journey through Nineveh? There seems to be some big issue with that. Because the reality is, is that it wasn't so big that you couldn't walk through there in really maybe three hours. Okay? But it's not that hard to figure out. If Jonah or anyone were to simply walk without interruption through the, the geographical walled boundaries of Nineveh, it might have taken three hours. But three days is how long it would take him to work his way through the city while stopping to preach his message in various spots. I'll tell you a little illustration of this. I just, I'm curious, how many of you have ever been to the West Edmonton Mall? That's in another country, I know. Nobody? 
Really? Okay, how many of you have ever been to Mall of America in Minneapolis? It's huge, right? Yeah, see, lots of hands. Huge, right? Okay, West Edmonton Mall is three times the size of the Mall of America. It's the largest shopping center in the world. 29 years ago, Jackie and I went there, and we spent three days there trying to walk through and visit that mall, and we didn't get through the whole thing. If, if we had just walked and not looked at anything, not stopped and lingered, um, we, we could have gotten through it in a day, but we didn't. We wanted to do all the stuff that the mall had and shop and all that. In fact, one of my favorite pictures in the whole world, they, they had a tiger cub display there. This is 29 years ago. <laughs> Jackie got to hold a tiger cub. She's so angry right now. Um, anybody have a, a spare bed tonight by any chance? <laughs> I love that picture. Anyway, um, that, that's what, I, that's what the, it's, it's talking about. It's, it would have taken him that long to go through it and stop and preach and do his thing. And then verse 4, look at Jonah's sermon. Yet 40 days, you're going to be overthrown. In the Hebrew, it's five words. Five-word sermon, y'all. Five words. That's it. Now, the text tells us that God specifically said... Jonah, go to Nineveh and call out the message that I tell you. But did, in fact, Jonah do that? It seems like maybe he truncated the message a bit. We don't know for sure. But, but it feels like maybe Jonah just did the bare minimum. Tim Keller, who has written lots about the book of Jonah, even argues that Jonah may have purposely sabotaged the me message so that they wouldn't repent. Douglas Stewart, another scholar, writes this. Jonah continued to hate his divine assignment, even though he was now submitted to it. And consider all the things that Jonah didn't mention in his message. Think about it this way. What didn't he mention? He didn't mention why they were going to be overthrown. He never said that. He never said what their sin was. Uh, he never said, here's what you need to do in response. He never said, here's something you could do in response. He never said on whose authority he was saying this. God is never mentioned in the sermon. There is no indictment, no instruction, and no encouragement in this sermon. It's just a description of what God's going to do. That's it. Five words. Yet scholars claim that a call for the Ninevites to repent is clearly implied in this short message. In other words, the implication is if they repent, it's possible that God might relent. And you even hear that at the end of chapter 3. Maybe he'll relent. And then there is repentance. There's fasting and sackcloth and ashes. All of those are symbolic of, of uh, an orientation of repentance. And they communicate genuine contrition. So sackcloth. Let me just talk a minute about sackcloth. Anybody here have on sackcloth today? Anybody wearing sackcloth? It's a very popular fabric I know to wear. It's really rough and coarse and uncomfortable for for a reason. It's to remind you of the sin. Here's what I find interesting about that. In Genesis chapter 3, when the man and woman disobey God and eat of the fruit and their eyes are opened and they need to cover themselves because of their sin, they cover themselves with fig leaves, right? Okay, my parents had uh, a fig tree in their backyard. Okay, just for you, but they covered their private parts with fig leaves, okay? My parents had a fig tree in the backyard, big, beautiful, lush leaves, very coarse like sandpaper. This is what they were wearing on their private parts. How's that for a reminder of your sin? Okay, there's a purpose in this symbolism, okay? But the big point 
really, is that there was repentance, even with this tiny little message. Here you go. Salvation belongs to the Lord. If you and I don't have our eyes opened by the Spirit of God to the truth and the wisdom of the Word of God, our salvation ends up being about us and not about God. There's no humility there, and that's a problem. Because salvation belongs to God, it is about God and not about us. It doesn't make us any less. It shouldn't hurt your self-esteem. If anything, it should boost your self-esteem that he's willing to do what he needs to do in order to save us. But if we begin to think that salvation is about us, we become proud. And God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That's humility. God works in our lives. Look at verses 4 and 5 uh, again, by the way. Let me just reread them. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now, as I've pointed out, this sermon was very short. And I know some of you are like, Frank, can you preach a little bit more like Jonah? The answer is no. Now, look at verse 5. We're done with that. The result, and the people of Nineveh believed God. The results of that are unpacked a little bit more in the next four verses, which we'll get to. And this is also the second time in this book that pagan people have believed Israel's God. Isn't that interesting? How often does that happen? Not very often. But wow. That repentance was really quick, right? You understand if the book had ended here, Jonah would be the greatest prophet in the Bible. Do you understand that? He would be considered the greatest prophet in the Bible that ended here. Tiny message, big results. I read this and I'm like, wait a minute, where's all the church programming? Okay, Where's all the evangelism training that we need to do? What about home groups? Did they set up home groups? Okay, Jonah didn't even put up a revival tent. I think that's suspicious in and of itself. God is sovereign. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This is clearly a picture of last week's sermon. But why the animals too? We see that in verses 6 through 9. The reason is because all of creation is subject to the fall of sin. All of creation has been, the created order, everything that's been created has been corrupted by our sin. We need to understand that. Sin not only gets in the way of our relationship with ourself, our relationship with God, our relationship with others, but it also devastates our relationship with creation and the created order. The created order wants, cries out, we're told in Romans 8, to be redeemed. Last week, Cody said salvation is situational, individual, communal, and it is cosmic. That's, what, that's the cosmic part of this. And it should not surprise us that the ancient ritual of acting out repentance was applied to the animals as well. That was protocol in their context. And even sometimes in our context, um, we will see animals used in processions and expressions of grief, such as funerals, sometimes horses. And by the way, what was the sin of Nineveh? In this case, it's not exactly clear, but we do know from history that they were, they were very cruel to other people groups. We also know from history that they were cruel to each other. So here you go. People who are cruel to other people groups, believe it or not, they tend to be cruel as a rule. Cruel to their own people as well. At this time, historically, Nineveh had a nickname. They were known as the City of Blood. That's how bad it was there. 
So this judgment on, on Nineveh wasn't coming just for Assyria's nationalism, but it was also coming for their individual sin against each other in the citizenry. Now, most scholars contend that the repentance of the Assyrians was either superficial or temporal because eventually they were destroyed sometime around 612 BC by the Babylonians. And some have suggested that their repentance was maybe more superstitious than driven by a, 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 a true love for God. And the reason is because we also know from history that around this time, from anywhere from 786 to 746 BC, which is when Jonah took place, they had suffered, uh, Assyria had suffered many natural disasters and, and events. They had bad earthquakes during this time. They had a bunch of flooding. And in 763 BC, they even had a full eclipse, which freaked the people out, we're told in history. So they may have been softened up for repentance, much in the same way people will make a foxhole conversion. You know, their situation is so bad, the only thing left to do is to cry out to God. Also, this is interesting, they had a god. Uh, their god was, was uh, named Dagon, and he was a fish god. Check this out, this is the god that, is it up there? Oh yeah, sorry. That was their god, Dagon. So, here you go. Some scholars have suggested that Jonah's reputation preceded him. <laughs> And they were impressed with him because of his winning bout with this big, huge fish that he had an in with Dagon. Interesting. But one thing we can say for sure, based on even a cursory reading of Jonah, is that every other character in this book, other than Jonah, seems to get and understand God more than Jonah does. Have you noticed that? Including the Ninevites. And then verses 6 through 9, again. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose uh, from his throne, and he removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published th that was published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way, and from the violence that is in his hands, there's a clue, who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. You know, we talk about believing in the miracles of the New Testament, Jesus' miracles, and perhaps how difficult it is to believe those miracles. But these four verses I find much harder to believe, to be honest with you. Here's this king of Assyria. Now, there's some discussion about who is this guy really, Nineveh was the largest city in Assyria, but it wasn't the royal city, so it wasn't like the capital city. So the king of Assyria would have been in a different city. So it may be talking about the governor of Nineveh, not the king of Assyria specifically, because they didn't, the Assyrians didn't have a word for governor. They were all just kings. So there was a king of the city, and there was a king of all of Assyria as well. So it might have been that the king of Assyria was visiting. It might have been the governor of Nineveh. We're not sure. But what, here's what we do know about that king. That king always won. That king never had to think about losing. That king always dominated. That king always had power. And here comes this loser, Jonah, and he listens to Jonah. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's not about the messenger. It's about the message. And this is not unusual in scripture. You see this happening in Daniel as well and in other places. I think that's miraculous that the people repented it was an act of God in their lives Jonah was just the vehicle to get the message there the other thing is that we think well Jonah would have been worried about some things going into Nineveh none of those things happened to him he wasn't expelled from the city he wasn't laughed at um, he wasn't persecuted for his message none of those things happened to Jonah 
which is interesting. And then verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now, that might be a perfect setup for Jonah getting really upset because <laughs> he doesn't like the Ninevites. And look at verse 1 of chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. God saved 120,000 people, and Jonah's angry. Okay? We'll get to that next week. But know this, it is fair to say that Jonah did not preach this message of divine judgment with somber and subdued concern, but rather he preached this message with great joy. These people, cruel and sinful, were going to be wiped out by God. Hallelujah. That's how he preached it, I believe. But they repented and God relented. And we'll see next week in chapter 4 just how depressed and angry Jonah becomes over the stay that God gives to the Ninevites. Which I understand why Jonah's upset. I get it. All of us have that feeling. All of us have that understanding of justice and how we'd like to see it carried out. But we have to ask ourselves in our church, is this how we proclaim the good news? That the gospel is for us because others will be judged and condemned? Is that how we proclaim it? I sure hope not. I sure hope not. And I know this is a difficult tension to engage. We're called by God to confront sin and evil, but we're called to do it in a joyful way, proclaiming it as good news for the other. So something I want to address here as we wrap up, and it's a point of application, I think. It's, it's based primarily on my reading of Tim Keller's book, The Prodigal Prophet, which is all about Jonah. And it's also based on some of the conversations we've had in the preaching collective. It's this idea of God's judgment as compared to the ministry of justice. God's judgment, his divine judgment, condemnation, as compared to ministry of justice. I've experienced this. Keller and others have written about it. Some people will preach this chapter of Jonah and will extol the, necess the, the necessity and the effectiveness of setting up justice ministries in a city so that people will come to God. Do you see anything slightly askew with that assessment? What's askew is that Jonah preached divine judgment and condemnation. That's all he talked about in his sermon. That's it. So the question that Keller asks is, how do people get there? And, and it's something we ought to unpack. Okay? Here's Keller's point that he makes in the book. And, and, and here's what I want you to understand about Tim Keller. What he's saying is coming from a pastor and an author who believes that the church in America needs to do more about justice. He's not upset about justice ministries. He thinks we need to do more. But he has an assessment. Here's what he says. Those who seem bent on justice rarely, if ever, discuss the truth of divine judgment. Those who seem bent on justice rarely, if ever, discuss the truth of divine judgment. But then he says, thankfully, there's another side to that coin. You know, we like to pigeonhole our favorite doctrines. You realize that, don't you? And the gospel is full. So he says there's another side to the coin. Those who are all over divine judgment rarely, if ever, recognize the genuine gospel need and biblical mandate for the liberation of the oppressed. In other words, the need for justice. Most of us are either or on this. 
A prophet, he says, is generally called to issue a message of judgment. That's what, generally what a prophet is called to do, an, a message of judgment. A missionary, however, is generally called to give a message of hope and justice. The point is, both are needed. We need prophets and we need missionaries. We need evangelists and we need people speaking the truth. Okay? And often those things cross over, but one is not better or more important than the other. Both are necessary for a full gospel. Here's what Keller writes. Repentance and the fight for justice go hand in hand. We proclaim Jesus and we fight for the weak. Redemption Church, gospel-centered and outward-focused. Some churches I've run into, the attitude of the people is this. Just tell us how wonderful we are and how good God is and everything will be fine. Mm, no. Other churches, just tell everyone how awful those with power and privilege are and everything will be fine. Mm, nope. A lot of Johnny One notes there. You see, all of us have a personal understanding of and a desire for what we wish the gospel was. Remember a few weeks ago when Cody talked about the tumor that we all have when we come in here? Sometimes that's the tumor. We're all about only one aspect of God, whatever that aspect is, and that tumor needs to be taken out. The tumor of consumerism needs to be taken out as well. The tumors of our sin need to be taken out as well. But that can be a tumor. It can be a good doctrine that you have elevated to the only doctrine. And that can become a tumor for us. A lot of this goes back to <clears throat> a book that, that I read many years ago that was highly influential on me. A, a guy named Larry Osborne wrote a book called uh, The Contrarian's Guide to Knowing God. So it goes back to that. And here's what I mean. I'll just give you a personal experience. Um, uh, Kind of recently, I had someone tell me that Redemption Church isn't pro-life enough. By the way, I want you to know, I understand all the tension out there right now in, in our uh, public spaces and in culture with the, redemption, uh, the uh, abortion issue. I wrote all of this before it came up, so I left it in because I figured that was God's timing on this, okay? But I had someone tell me um, a while back that Redemption isn't pro-life enough, and they left. They said, we don't condemn abortion enough. Now, you need to understand, I, I, am, I am against abortion. And you, you also, I hope you understand, I have the biblical argument against abortion figured out. I have the scientific argument against abortion pretty well figured out. I have the cultural argument against abortion figured out. I have the moral argument. I have every argument that you could possibly want pretty well figured out. You can come and talk to me about it if you want. I just want, I just, that's my disclaimer. I am against abortion, okay? All right, I get that? Okay. But also, you got to hear this. Being pro-life is not just about being against abortion. Do you see how we want to just focus in on that one narrow little thing? We do this with doctrines. We do it with cultural mores. This is so important, okay? Being pro-life is also about ministering to people who have been born, including those who have had abortions and are reeling from it. I want you to think about this. It seems to me that there are few things more pro-life than redemption, foster care, and adoption. Seems to me that there are few things more pro-life than our work with refugees. It seems to me that there are few things more pro-life than, than how we're supporting immigrant hope in West Mesa. I think working with prisoners is pro-life. Proclaiming the gospel is pro-life. 
Now, it's true. In an, in an abortion, an image bearer of God is being terminated, and that is, that is tragic, and it is a form of injustice to the unborn. But foster kids, orphans, immigrants, refugees, and convicts are also image bearers of God. My understanding of the gospel is that pro-life is about as, mu as much about those who have been born as those who have not yet been born. And my also... Also, my understanding of the gospel is that we preach the good news of Jesus to and minister to those who have had abortions. It's not the unforgivable sin. Let me press a little bit more. If I don't pick at Planned Parenthood, it doesn't make me a deficient Christian any more than you never visiting a convict makes you any less of a Christian. You get that? You get that? But how often are we doing exactly what Paul tells us not to do in 1 Corinthians 12 and we're comparing our spirituality to other people? Well, I don't know what I'm doing. Here's what I'm doing. Osborne says it this way in his book. Your passion is not my passion. It's not supposed to be. We are a body and differing passions make us a body. See 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I've also had people wonder why I'm not down at the border protesting the government's handling of the immigration crisis. You know, here's my answer to that. Christianity is way off track when people start to moralize their personal preferences. And, and by the way, moralizing personal preferences, it doesn't matter if it's music or politics or ministry programs. When preferences are moralized, that's when the church becomes a consumer product or a political action committee, and we are way off base at that point. It doesn't mean we don't speak into these things. We must speak into these things. But the church is about Jesus and his salvation, the cross and the resurrection, first and foremost. And then that gets us to these other things. That gets us to the prophets of God. That gets us to the teaching of Paul. We have to start with the cross and resurrection. What has happened to our supposed belief in the sovereignty of God and the filling of the Holy Spirit in believers? See, Jonah does not get caught in this trap. He preaches divine judgment against a people who are experts at injustice. Do you see how the two came together there? He preached divine judgment against people who are experts at injustice. And as a result... Their love for God, hopefully, will compel them to love others. I want to wrap up with this little passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Here's what Paul writes. Paul, possibly the greatest evangelism, evangelist to ever live. And I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the, of the spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's what we're trying to get at here, and that's what Jonah is about. Salvation belongs to the Lord. George Lawson, the great old preacher and author, writes this. Listen to this. 
Consider the impossibility of speech to overcome stubbornness. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And that is the gospel. That is the good news. That it's Jesus's. It's the Father's. It's the Holy Spirit's. Let me pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth. Even when, as Carrie said, it's uncomfortable. And, and I know that the book of Jonah is uncomfortable when we see it in its total light, and it's not just a children's story. We see it for the rhetorical masterpiece it is, but even beyond that, we see it for your sovereignty, your beauty, your perfection, your mercy, and your salvation. God, I pray the Holy Spirit would move in our lives and that we would press into that by the power of the giving of your life to us. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.